hello and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. The December 2021 Situation and Outlook Report describes factors supporting ongoing farm gate profitability this season, despite challenging conditions in parts of the country this spring. Last year proved to be one of the most profitable in recent times, as most dairy regions reported their highest average earnings since the 2013-14 financial year. This was according to the Dairy Farm Monitor Project. In this podcast, Dairy Australia's John Droppett caught up with Matt Dalgleish from Thomas Elder Markets. Matt started out trading equities in the late 1980s while still in high school and moved across to trading currencies at a major Australian bank once university was completed. Matt eventually made the transition into agricultural market analysis, enabling him to use his data analytics and forecasting skills to provide commentary and strategic advice to the agricultural industry, particularly within the livestock sector. Matt has become a prominent agricultural market analyst, often quoted in the ag press and sought after for his independent data-driven assessment of agricultural markets. The December Situation and Outlook report notes increasing competition for resources between beef and dairy in some regions and the increasing focus of many dairy farms on beef production as a sideline business. With that in mind, John and Matt discuss the outlook for beef prices and whether the beef boom is likely to turn into a bust anytime soon. Matt Dalglish, welcome to DairyPod. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. No, it's 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 something that's been on my list for a while because uh, you know when I was a kid I uh, I grew up knowing you know in the dairy industry knowing that the only thing I knew about beef farming was that people went broke uh, doing it <laughs> I, they either they either were broke lived broke or were on their way there uh, whereas now it seems like uh, things have sort of turned the other way and uh, you know there's dairy farmers um, you know getting into beef and uh, you know the EYCI is setting a new record every week or two. Um, you know, I've been enthusiastically predicting for a long time that it was going to all come crashing down, but uh, what's, what's going on? Well, as, as have I, we'll get, we'll get to that, I guess, but it's a funny thing you say regarding your upbringing there. My first, I guess, job, I suppose, because I'm an urban kid originally, right? A lot of people might not know that in the agricultural space. So I grew up in near suburb, suburban Melbourne, effectively, one of the suburbs, but I went out and did work, my first experience in agriculture, and actually what got me into and enjoyment of the industry at an early age was working on a dairy farm was the first place I worked, um, you know, over the summer and doing, you know, helping out yeah, with right. the hay baling. Hay baling. I, and I'm old enough, John, uh, that, that back then we were, hay, we were baling hay with the little, the little little kind of rectangular bales. There was no round bales, or at least that was the farmer I was working for. He was a pretty, pretty old school dairy guy. And I used to think to myself, bloody hell, this dairy farming is a hard gig, you know. Um, and then he switched into beef um, later on as he got older. So he went from dairy to beef and still is a beef farmer um, down, down in Wilson's Prom. Um, and I always kind of thought it was, you know, the other way around that, that the dairy guys were the ones that were doing that real hard and, and struggling back when I was a kid. But obviously it wasn't the case. They were, they were making good money. And, yeah, so it's interesting you say that because my perception was that Beef's the, beef's the kind of game where you make the good money. But um, I think you're right. There are times where there's a lot of beef people that are in this space. And I know it's like a lot of things in ag. A lot of people do it for the love of the lifestyle and they don't always crunch the numbers completely. Obviously, they do to run their business successfully. But I think there is an element there that depending upon what you choose, whether it's wool or dairy or, or cattle or whatever, cropping, I think there's an aspect of lifestyle as well as uh, you know um, the money side of it. 
So I think that's an important factor. But but getting onto the cattle prices, I was, I was I was doing a bit of a deviation there. You know, we're famous for deviations and tangents on oh, our podcast. Um, but um, with regards to cattle, you know, I'm in the same same boat. You know, I, I kind of thought the uh, Eastern Young Cattle Indicator would get a bit toppy ahead of ten dollars, and um, and that's been pretty much blown out of the water. Um, this last little spike we've seen through $11, I think a lot of that's to do with some of the, this short-term supply concerns around the rainfall we've seen certainly and getting transport into certain areas in New South Wales and Queensland. I think that's part of the reason. And I think we're also seeing it replicated not just in the in the you know, young cattle and the store cattle prices. We're seeing finished cattle moving up to record highs as well. Um, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite marry up with still what's going on in the international space. Um, so, you know, obviously it's a, it's a combination, of course, initially uh, of the supply, tight supply, the, the, the fantastic season we're seeing across almost all of the country um, has obviously, you know, got the underlying price at pretty high levels, but then it's just been topped up, I think, short term by, by this added um, extended wet season into spring and, and the troubles people are getting. Uh, getting cattle to market. There's there's a, there's a few sale yards in New South Wales last week that were that couldn't couldn't have anything coming through because they were flooded out, and then obviously getting access to the paddocks to just get the trucks in to move the cattle has been problematic too. So I think we're seeing a bit of reaction to that. Um, yep. Longer term, longer term though, I do feel you know we're shaping up for another pretty good season uh, in the beef space next year in terms of um, how much you know this La Nina is going to extend through into um, 2022. Um, you know, that's, and, and given the, the nature of the, the rebuild, we, that's going to extend through as well. We're looking at um, another, another good year, I think. Maybe not as solid a pricing year as what we've seen this year, but certainly um, from a historical perspective, I think we're going to see pretty, pretty robust prices. And we're probably not looking at any significant downturns in, until late 2023 and maybe 2024. I, I suspect in the next three to four years, we might, we might squeeze in one year of, of dry uh, at a minimum. Um, so I think that's probably the first time we're going to start to see some real pressure come into the market. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the changes we have seen is, you know, these uh, we've, we've got dairy farmers reducing numbers. Um, it's obviously that, that, that those animals are hitting the market, but we're seeing, you know, bobby calves being reared on farm. Um, you know, every every hobby farmer worth their salts uh, keeping a few beefies around at the moment. Um you know, you, you're looking at one one of those uh, suckers uh, right now on the screen. But <laughs> is, is, is all of this extra, you know, is that extra rearing capacity or that extra interest enough to tip things? Or, or when you compare sort of the northern cattle herd, um, you know, the sort of those of us scratching around in southern Australia thinking we're beef barons now, uh, you know, is that going to have an impact or is it just the scale is just completely, uh, you know, completely different? And and the beef market will do what it does regardless of how many dairy farmers, uh, you know, keep a few extra Angus uh, steers on. Yeah, look, I think um, if you look at the broader numbers for sure that that um, those big pastoral operations um, further north are the ones that really drive what happens. Yeah, just looking alone at Queensland, I think there's something like 46% of the of the cattle herd is is, is in that Queensland uh, the state of Queensland and 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 that's why they dominate the processing as well. So you know you, you're not you know what you're saying too it rings a bell. I'm, I mean the southern systems there in in um, just out of Ballarat and and our neighbours have got I mean they're running about six or seven you know mixture of they're a bit of a mix of you, know, you can see there's a bit of dairy in them but they're not 100 percent mm. dairy. Um, you know, and, and so yeah, they, those those are just tinkering around the edges. I don't think they're gonna 
uh, have a huge impact and and the big the big movements in terms of supply and herd are, are still going to come out of those northern northern pastoral places i think and and, and dairy is not a a huge factor up there of course yeah yeah so if uh, you know if you're a dairy farmer rearing rearing those beef calves or or, or even looking at you know going across it's really the um you, know, you want to be looking at beef markets, not how many of your neighbours are doing it as well. You don't have to stress if, uh, if, they're, if they're doing it. No, no. Look, I think too that the the broader, when you look at the broader picture uh, in terms of what's going on globally, um, I, I don't think there's a real pressing concern that we're going to see, you know, significant um, significant price pressure globally. Even, even with, the, I mean, I know Australian prices, when you look at where we're sitting internationally, we're at record levels, but there's reasons for that, you know, we, we, and we're at record premiums, but there are good reasons for that given how low our, um, how low our herd is, how, how we're, you know, we, we're kind of coming to the stage now where we are actually restricting our slaughter quite a bit compared to historic levels. You know, slaughter's, you know, down in the six millions or potentially, depending on how we finish this season, it might even duck under six million head annually. And we're, we're in another 6.6, I think, is the forecast for next year, which is incredibly low levels of slaughter when you look at the historic. So, you know, the, the, the domestic picture... Is pretty is pretty good. Um, I think internationally, um, you know, there's a, there's concerns around uh, supply chain and what's going on with uh, the Brazilian herd and, and issues around you know um, BSE and FMD and all that kind of stuff that they're always they're always battling against. You got the Argentinian Argentinian situation where the government's still restricting uh, beef exports. You know, you got the US going through a, re- a destocking phase at the moment, so there's a bit of um, extra production there and supply there. But you know, probably by the time we get to our potential, you know, next phase of liquidation, you know, three four years down the track, the US herd is probably going to be in a rebuild by that stage. If you look at the normal kind of, so that's going to probably support the global market as they go through their rebuild. Um, and uh, you know, and, and that's at a stage where we might be destocking. So that's going to probably help us out as well. When when we do get to the stage where prices start to ease, we could be flipping it around where we go back to a discount, like the normal scenario. Um, but but the global market will help support you know the, the broader prices here, even though we're destocking. So I think I think the producer for the next the beef producer is in a pretty good space. Uh, you know, for for the next uh, at least five years, even with the potential of that one year or so of drought. Yeah, oh, my kids might grow up with a very different perception of the beef industry than what I did. Um, the, the the other thing, I mean, I know you guys, uh, or you in particular, with, with Thomas Elder Markets, you're you're tracking processor margins, and you you know you've you've had some things to say about that in recent times. So, you know, you know, it's not just the it's not just the animals that are bleeding on the uh, on the kill floor. There is is um. You know, is there is there a circuit breaker there? You know, are we going to see um, consolidation that kind of uh, you know, obviously, to try and help repair those processor margins, or maybe it's a consequence of of where they where they are at the moment in in really negative territory. And and what's the I guess what's the the you know the flow on effects of that? Yeah, that that is from a broader supply chain. That that's been a concern I've had for a while. Um, that that processes are suffering. Although I mean, you probably every time I say that, I, I think there's probably a groan that comes out of a lot of the producers out there. Um, <laughs> You know, because you, know, you don't have to go that far back in time to to see when processors were making really good money. You know, um, and, and certainly back in 2019, they, they were getting up near record profits. Um, and then in 2014, 15, you know, substantial profits as well every time we went through drought. So it does 
it does seem to be that pattern of, you know, we're in rebuild phase now and it's wet and the processes suffer and, and when slaughter's low and that'll turn again, you know, um, within mm. a year or so. Uh, a lot of the processes were aware this was coming, this this tight season. Um, and like I said, they, they would have had a bit of money in the kitty. Certainly um, the model is showing, I think the average uh, loss per head of cattle that the model shows as of, as of just last month was um, $320 a head. For, for the current season, that's the biggest loss we've seen according to the model since it was since it was running, which is going back monthly to 2000. Um, so yeah, so it is significant. But then, if you look at the actual absolute figure of 320, um, that's a big number. But that's 320 loss on an animal that's now worth over 2000. You know, yeah. um, whereas if you go back say 10 years, the loss might have been 150, say in a, in a big loss year uh, per head. But that was on an animal that was worth, you know, fourteen hundred. Um, mm. So, so when you actually compare how much they're losing now in a percentage term of, of the value of the heavy steer, the absolute value, we're probably it's pretty similar levels that we saw historically. You know, even going back to the early part of the two thousands, uh, percentage wise, the losses are around that 50 of the of the animal's value at the moment. Um, so, so that you know, that's kind of that's kind of relevant. Um, you know that, that it's it's a tough period, but it's not. It's a, and it's a tough period when you look at the, the the absolute figure. But in percentage terms, they've been here before a few times. Um, in saying that, though, I think given how you know that the rebuild is going to carry through, I think into twenty twenty two, the high pricing situation in terms of domestic pricing. So that's a, a cost input to the processor. Um, that's mm-hmm. going to carry through again to twenty twenty two. So there's no there's no real um, you know kind of. Uh, you know, golden kind of shimmer on the horizon. The process is just are just around the corner. Um, that they're going to start making good money again. I think they've got another, at least another year's worth of tough times. Um, I should say, as a caveat, though, John, you know, we've got to bear in mind that the model we produce is a theoretical model based off yeah. a, a representative processor, and it's just a beef processing margin. Mm. Um, so processes that are out there that are, that have got multi species that have you know, got bigger operations than, than some, they, they might be having economies of scale and, and money they're making in other avenues where they're not hurting as much as what our model suggests. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and so, so it, is, it is representative when we're looking at the trend. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I do think we are going to continue to see a bit of um, rationalisation of the industry, and I think we're going to see more of that into next year because the longer this drags out, like I said, I think the process we're ready, ready for this. Um, but it's a matter of how how much they've been able to prepare and how long they can go for, and, and potentially some of those smaller independent type processes that are, that have got maybe limited, you know, limited economy of scale that might only be doing beef and mm. not you know smaller small animals or, or pigs or whatever or chickens. Um, they they're probably going to be the ones that are are going to be looking at how how can they manage or do they need to take on additional assistance from, you know, going to partnerships or, or in, I think there was a, a family-run processor in Kitan just a few months back that have that have kind of sold the business and the, the family's remaining on in the management, but they've sold the business. So yeah. I think I think we're going to see that type of rationalisation. We've certainly seen the likes of JBS, the big players, um, coming in and using an opportunity now to, to expand into things like, you know, a bigger, bigger footprint in the pig space. Mm. Um, that, that I see the ACCC just um, just approved that purchase, uh, and into and indeed JBS into into um, salmon in Tasmania as well. So, um, you know, those bigger players I think can use this as an opportunity uh, to to expand their footprint. Um, but but from a producer's perspective, 
um, that's a little bit of a concern. We, we you know, obviously, um, it's it's a good thing if we've got a lot of competition in that space. So um, from a longer term supply chain perspective, I'd like to see the processes, you know, being a bit more profitable and, and potentially not, not going through a stage where we're going to lose some of these smaller regional independent type operators. Cause I think if we consolidate too much, then you get into a situation like we have in the, in the West of the country where there's only a handful of processes and they tend to dominate what goes on. We, I don't think we want to be there. Um, I think that, that could, that, you know, we're, at Thomas Older Markets, we're, we're big fans of markets, obviously, um, and and yeah. to have a good, a, a good functioning market, you you know, you need to have enough competition there, and and, and I think we need to make sure that um, that that's the case in the beef supply chain in processing, definitely. Yeah, and have that that sort of dynamic, uh, big and small processes, uh, you know, in, drives innovation as well as competition. Mm. Um, we, you know, we've gotten this far. Matt, and we haven't dropped the C bomb yet, so uh, so I might I might throw that in there. I mean, you know, COVID has has created well challenges for everyone, but um, you know, for for dairy farmers uh, or for the dairy industry, that's really been around labour on farm um, uh, to, to to a certain extent in in processing facilities as well, and then there's been the logistics and, and shipping side of things, um, getting product out to market. Um, what's the equivalent in, in beef? What's, uh, you know, what, what are the what are the pinch points that COVID's creating? Um, you know, I think you know, throughput in abattoirs has been one that you guys have been watching pretty closely. Are there, are there other, uh, you know, other impacts being felt? Yeah, I think I think that's the big one is the is the you know, kind of lack of, um, you know, both skilled and unskilled workers in the abattoir level. I think we've been lucky, though, in the beef space that, because, um, and, and I, you can include, I guess, the broader red meat space with sheep meat as well, that, um, you know, given that both of those industries have been going through a tight supply situation and we're in the rebuild, obviously um, throughput numbers at the abattoirs have been reduced. And I think that's probably been a little bit of a saving grace that when we've gone through this disruption to the workforce, we haven't gone through this disruption at a time when we were destocking aggressively. Um, and, and I think so the potentially... Um, and, and it's a matter now of whether whether that's that COVID-based, um, you know, travel restriction-based issues with labour force that are certainly impacting on farm. I think a lot more than than the processing because because of that dynamic of, of, of the lower throughput. Um, if that extends through and we continue to have issues with labour in, in beyond COVID, um, and we start to see issues with labour, you know, when um, when when the throughput starts to increase at the abattoirs, I think. We potentially might still be yet to see that play out fully. I don't think. I don't think. I think it's just been fortunate timing uh, for the beef space. Uh, you know, on, certainly we've got the same constraints on farm that what the what the dairy side's facing with regards to you know, on farm workers. I don't think it's been playing out as big in the in the transport sector. Seems to be managing okay. We certainly aren't seeing. When I say transport, I mean road transport. I we're not seeing the the kind of bottlenecks that have been seen in the UK in terms of how it's impacted there. We've seen all the queues at the petrol stations on the news. I think that, you know, that broadly speaking, the, the road transport in Australia has been doing okay um, in terms of labour, but um, certainly, you know, on-farm's been an issue. Um, but to me, the biggest pinch point is, is in that processing area. And I think we're, 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 we, haven't, we haven't really put it, even though it's tough for, for the processors to find this staff, we haven't really put it under a lot of pressure uh, just because of that lack of lack of throughput compared to pre, you know, other years, um, and and I'm, I'm concerned that we don't get it. If we don't get it 
back up and running and up to speed when we do start increasing throughput at the processes, then um, we might find that it's like a legacy of a bottleneck there that's going to cause issues. Um, mm. and, and that has price implications, of course, for the producer. If, you know, if we find that there's, that there's capacity bottlenecks in the processing side for, for, for red meat when we do start um, you know, slaughtering more, um, that, could, that could flow right the way back through to the sale yard and, and exacerbate the potential for, 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 you know, for price uh, problems for the producer. You know, I don't want to sound all doom and gloom because it's lots of hypotheticals there, but mm. it, but it is it is a concern. I think that's that's an issue, and I mean the shipping side of it's a whole you know whole other ball game. Um, the, you know exports have been lower just because of that reduced production, but um, you know there has been some hiccups and there has been a lot of redistribution of of, of methods of, of of transport. Um, probably in, probably impacting the sheep space, sheep meat space more than the beef space. Um, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure how much you, how much detail you want me to go into there. That's a, that could be another ten minute discussion. Yeah, we, we, might, we might have to have another episode on that one. Um, yeah, leave us a comment if you want that. Um, is the um, sorry this, this this wasn't a question I was planning on asking, but I've just you know been making some linkages to what we're you know talking about overseas uh, in, in terms of overseas consumers, and I think they're saying. You know, maybe a billion people have fallen down the uh, you know the income ladder in, in you know, over the course of the pandemic, and you know for, for dairy that's a real concern in, in markets in Southeast Asia where you know dairy is a, uh, a premium food and you know it's, a, it's an aspirational product. And but if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. Um, is is that a similar concern for meat? You know, for meat marketing, or you know, is that something that can have an impact back to the farm gate, or is um, you know, is the set of products coming out of an individual animal that diverse and then the market can soak up, um, you know, these sorts of demographic changes in, in, you know, in places like Southeast Asia where, uh, you know, where consumption might be impacted? Mm. Yeah, look, I think we're certainly, I mean, we look at dairy from time to time at Thomas Holder Marcus, but we're certainly not, we wouldn't put ourselves out to being the dairy experts that you guys are. Um, my, my, my honest, like, and the way, when I look at dairy, I tend to look fairly globally and I, I do think that dairy, is much more responsive to um, global global growth levels than thing that than the red meat space. I think um, I don't. I'm not sure whether it's you know it's a bit like I kind of almost from a, from a modelling perspective, um, I see a much higher um, correlation between global growth and say dairy yeah. as a, a pricing and, and a higher correlation between global growth and things like wool. And I don't know whether dairy. Like you said, it's an aspirational type purchase in some of those, um, some of those Southeast Asian places. But I wonder how much of, of the, the you know the, the dairy is, is is considered essential, and how much of it is considered as a bit of a, a product I buy if I've got that additional money, um, like like a wool product that becomes yeah. more just more more of a discretionary spend than a than a necessary. Um, and like I said, I'm no expert in that dairy space, but I get the impression that that may be the case. You probably tell me better there. But from the, from the red meat perspective, I think. You know, intuitively, from a from a consumer perspective, I think if you stack up, you know, your, your kind of purchase purchase kind of decisions you make every day, um, the, the lower your income becomes. I think you know something like meat as a staple is one of the last things you'll cut out. You certainly might adjust for premium meat down to a more you know budget meat product, but mm. I think the consumer pr- will probably be loath to cut meat out of their purchasing until they really get desperate. And 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 like I said, I. I I don't disagree. They will change. They'll change and substitute for a lower value meat product, but they won't cut it out. Whereas maybe with some of the dairy stuff, when it gets too tough, 
they might not buy they'll buy the milk perhaps but they won't buy the, the cheese or the yogurt mm. or the other the other product I, I suspect there's a little element of of you know of, of, of consumer behavior there that drives the that drives the responsiveness of dairy to to, to tie it in more with what's happening with global uh, and, and per capita um, kind of um, wealth um, mm. you know, uh, yeah so from that perspective I think it's you know the the, the the meat producers in a fortunate space that you've got a, you know, you've got a product that's um, that's pretty, it's pretty popular amongst the consumer. If, you know, I think some of the narrative around um, fake meat or, or, or vegetarianism. If you look at actually the the, the consumption flows globally, um, it, vegetarianism and veganism and all those aspects, I think, are talked about much much more than that they represent in terms of the consumption patterns. If that makes sense, yeah, we certainly notice in dairy the, um, you know, I think in Australia, ninety eight percent of households will buy dairy products. So a lot of a lot of people that might purchase a non dairy drink, they'll still buy cheese, or they'll, you know, or they'll be they'll be buying it for you know for for the you know the recalcitrant teenager or something, um, but but still drink the real stuff themselves. So uh, you know we see that too. There's the, the the zealots the the real anti animal agriculture or anti animal product zealots are fairly mm. Um, mm. fairly small proportion even if there is a lot of interest in some of these fake products um, it's it's not necessarily a, a religious thing mm. I think we could fall into a trap too and I know we you know obviously we we've got to focus on what happens in the domestic market as well but um, I think there's sometimes an element where we do tend to look too much and put too much um, uh, you know, focus on on the domestic consumer here and the domestic consumer's behaviours, as opposed to the consumer behaviours of our big um, nations that we export to. You know, and, and I'm thinking, like, you know, particularly for for the the red meat space and beefs beefs there, that that you know, 75 or 70 to 75 percent of the product we produce on any given year goes exported, and the bulk of that goes into you know, uh, broadly the, the North Asian kind of market and, and, and you know, kind of Southeast Asian uh, and to a degree the U.S. is the only other kind of, I guess, big, from a beef's perspective, the U.S. is the only other big um, non-Asian-based uh, marketplace for our beef exports. Um, so, therefore, the, the, the behaviour of the U.S. consumer to a degree uh, can be important. But, but broadly speaking, the bulk of our export product is going into that market where there's a... Um, you know, uh, I mean, certainly, the, say Japan and North Korea are pretty established, high-income countries that have um, consumption patterns that mirror uh, what's happening domestically in, in North America. But you know, there's lots of other marketplaces there, uh, and growing marketplaces, even like your Indonesia's. Uh, you know, and and obviously we've had issues with China the last year or so in terms of trade, but it hasn't disrupted the flow of beef as much as what you'd expect. Uh, and I think that part of that is because there is a still a growing, you know, COVID aside, we've still got a growing population, a growing kind of uh, wealthy population that are, that have got a real desire to, um, to consume red meat and, and, and Australian red meat, whether it's beef or sheep meat, it's got an incredibly good reputation globally. Um, so it kind of puts you in pretty good stead, you know, uh, as a producer to know that you've got, you know, a vast kind of group that you can sell your product to. Um, and so, like I said, you know, sometimes we focus a lot on, on these little niche 
um, kind of people that are <laughs> that are that have got a, a, I guess, to a degree, a bit of an agenda around what they're trying to trying to achieve and saying that you know veganism is going to take over or the you know we're eating less meat and we certainly are eating less meat uh, per capita in Australia of, of, of kind of, of red meat, um, but I don't think that's the key market for us going into the future. Do you know what yeah. I mean? If Australia continues to you know, reduce our per capita red meat consumption, which we're likely to do, um, and and even if we're you know replacing it with chicken or pork or whatever, um, you know, there's the there's a huge market for our product on our doorstep, and that's not going away, and it's not getting smaller. Um, you know, so you know that's what we should be looking at. I think longer term in terms of strategy and keeping to focus on on where the bulk of the product's going. You know, and I think I imagine dairy is the same. Yeah, and most people would be well aware that are listening to this. But I mean, that that yawning gulf between we might be reducing our per capita; those countries are increasing, but uh, there's still a hell of a lot of uh, gap between uh, where we're coming down from and where they're going up to. Mm. Um, look, I wanted to ask you a few more questions, but I think uh, we're probably getting a little tight for time. So, um, but I, I do want to ask you about this one in. in, in with beef prices so strong, I think that's probably contributed in part to it. But also, um, you know, there's a real imperative in the dairy industry to, um, you know, to, to resolve the issue of bobby calves and, uh, you know, to do something, um, you know, do something more with that resource. Um, and we've seen some real progress, you know, in, in recent times towards establishing, you know, different pathways for those calves uh, to be reared either on, on farm as they are in some cases or, you know, sold on to other rarers and, uh, and entering the market uh, that way. This, this, this is probably a bit of a niche thing from your perspective as a red meat analyst, but, I mean, do you see that sort of thing as having staying power, you know, if the market turns or, or do you see, you know, that, that any investment that's been made in that will kind of, you know, it'll fall out of fashion because it's too much trouble, and uh, you know the, um, you know, why, why bother dealing with these 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 bobby calves when you can, uh, you know, go back to the old, you know, old, old sources of, of of beef animals and uh, you know the more traditional sort of methods. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, and like you said, it's not it's not one we we focus on uh, extensively just because of the nature of that market that is quite niche, but. Um, I do look. I do. I think. I think there's actually an aspect where there's a, a potentially a missed opportunity there. Um, you know, I see it a little bit in the mutton space as well, where where I think you know there's a perception around the product um, that I don't think is accurate, and sometimes it's around how the animal is treated. Um, you know, in terms of you know when it's being processed or what it's being used for. But I think there's a there's a good degree of um, the way in which something's branded or marketed can also make a difference. And I think the, the Bobby calf scenario is one of those. I know I th- I'm thinking back a, a good while ago now, and it might've been a UK based documentary where they were looking at, you know, the kind of reluctance of, of the consumption of veal and because of the nature of, of veal, you know, being, being those young calves that were being slaughtered at a, at a young age. Um, and, and then there was a big push within the UK I think they were calling it rosé veal. So it was like a, you know, dairy calf, um, bobby calf type um, that was instead of being um, taken to slaughter much, much earlier in its life, um, they were actually actively looking to, uh, you know, 
enhance the the value of the of the animal by growing it out a bit longer, and and obviously it was changing the changing the um the nature of the product in terms of the, the you know it wasn't it wasn't the lighter whiter veal type that you would have you know looked at traditionally it was it had much more of a a beefiness to it, um, but then they marketed the product such as well. And I think um, I think there is a space for these things. It's just how it's how it's treated. Um, so you know, I would look at it as, as an opportunity. You know, and and I think you know the way things are moving with regards to um, you know the the, the this environmental or sustainable footprint of an industry um, to have to have what what is a, a good quality end product that you can achieve. Right to, to just um, to just cast it aside because because there's not a market necessarily for it immediately. I think sometimes we've got to be a bit more um, proactive in terms of how we create a market and how we, how, how as producers and as an industry, how we drive the narrative and say, well, this is how we used to treat those animals. Um, but, you know, that our view, that's a, you know, not the optimal type of treatment. And so I think there's an opportunity to actually do more and, 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 and push that, push that more so then you, you could potentially have situations and it doesn't always work every season, but it may be the case that in the better seasons, you, you know, when you have got the additional pasture or whatever, or in times when you've got tight supply in the beef space, you know, you, you're almost opportunistically doing it. But but I think from a marketing perspective, you've probably got to um, be there longer term and actually have that as an ongoing, uh, you know, whether it's something that, that, that you know, some of the um, industry bodies get on board and assess the, the you know, whether there's an actual... Uh, business case to develop it but i think you know those types of little niches i see them as opportunities for areas of growth going forward rather than you know um these things that you just do every now and then i think you've yeah. got to be i think you've got to be a lot more structured in your approach and and and, and i think that's where i think you can really you know they're the types of things that can 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 lead into this um you know, national farmers um, getting to 100 million. It's all these areas where we're not necessarily doing as best we could um, in, in certain areas, uh, and and maybe not utilising the resources to their best to their best you know outcome. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, I, I think um, as it stands now, I don't think there's enough in that space to to like you said. I think I think the risk is when we go back to a bigger beef herd that 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 we fall back into the old pattern of just you know dealing with bobby cars as we have done previously but I, I would see that as a missed opportunity but it probably needs it probably needs more than just you know us talking about on a podcast it needs a, a <laughs> you know a little bit more issues yeah a little bit more kind of investigation into it and then potentially you know potentially um whether it's the likes of an mla or or, or you know a, a government-led initiative or some kind of industry-based uh, or producer-based initiative to say yeah, that that idea has legs, and um, and we should kind of pursue it. I think that's where where you, where you get to see, um, you know, innovative innovative things come through um, that, that then that then become uh, an established kind of whether it's a niche market or, or bigger. I think there's there's lots of opportunities in that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, DA is actually investing in a, uh, you know doing exactly that at the moment. So I think uh, you know I'll. I have to point out to point out to the project team that uh, that you've endorsed their approach. They uh, <laughs> can write that in the report. Yeah, um, no, I definitely. I mean, and that's exactly that's exactly the, the the type of bodies that I think you know you, you see it. You, you, it's it's that kind of thinking that I think really keeps an industry, um, you know, moving forward and on and on the cutting edge and demonstrating that you that you're responding to 
you know what people want, which is you know we we don't we want to see um, we want to see animals cared for well. We want to see them um, you know if, if if we're in this if we're in this game where we're using animal and animal product you know uh, to our benefit and, and uh, you want to be able to um, get the most out of that 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 process um, both for our benefit economically, but I think also to do to do justice and respect to the animal. I think you should be you know you should be always looking to try and um, you know, uh, optimize, optimize mm. your, your resources. Otherwise, you know, nothing worse than, than, than seeing things being wasted. Uh, uh, in my view, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the time I spent with Andrew Whitelaw, the Scottish, uh, and my Scottish <laughs> heritage. We don't like, we don't like, and that's why we're such fans of that on our podcast of things like black pudding, John, you know, um, to, you know, using Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to be involved in this space, you should be paying, you know, respect to the creature through its life. You know, in terms of welfare and, and making sure you're doing the right thing every single day of the week, uh, and and then also paying respect to the creature post its life to to making sure you've you've optimised um, the product it offers you um, as much as you can. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd be a strong supporter of any program, and and that kind of veal product I think is delicious as well. So, yeah, well, it's very <laughs> uh, it's a very temple grounded philosophy you're channeling there. So uh, that's excellent. <laughs> Look, I've got one more question for you, Matt, and, and I've sort of given you, uh, you know, a bit of a wrong steer there with, uh, you know, when, when, not, when we were talking about it before, some of the notes. So I was going to ask you about, you know, markets a year from now, but uh, I think you've answered that for us already. So I'm kind of thinking maybe, you know, 10 years from now, what, what's, what's going to be driving beef markets or, you know, red meat markets or, you know, are we, are we are, you know, prices will still go up, prices will still go down, you know, it won't rain, it will rain too much. Um, yeah, what, are the, what are the big changes you see? heading forwards yeah look i think i think covid's been obviously a big disruption to you know what we're expecting in terms of the way the market was playing out and, and like you're right in saying that we're going to continue to get the the seasonal kind of patterns that happen not just in in the season in terms of the normal ups and downs within the season but also seasonal from the perspective of climate you know when we have these um periods of wet and dry that, that drive our rebuilding and our, our destocking phases, that, that's going to continue. So you, you get that seasonal up and down troughs through that as well. But I think the broad trend, um, you know, and, and it harks back to what was probably being discussed a decade ago in terms of what's what's happening. And it's not just an, it's not just a narrative. I'm, I'm conscious of not just talking about, you know, China as the, the big driver. Of course, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be active. But I think, you know, things like the Indonesian Free Trade Agreement, um, you know, that's another one where where there's a lot of opportunities for, for a country like Australia um, to benefit, whether it's through the dairy side or the beef side or the, the wheat side or, or indeed other agricultural commodities. I think we're, we're perfectly positioned um, in that little corner of the world that's got big populations, big, big kind of, um, you know, growth in, in incomes uh, in, within those populations. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, the, the broad kind of supply and demand picture around, um, around red meat is that it's, um, you know, it's going to favour uh, the, the producer over the longer term. You know, that I think there's, there's a reason why we're seeing, you know, and have been seeing over the last, say, decade or so, what what you you know when I was in the currency game we used to call them the smart money or the big investors and the hedge funds and the you know the big operators in financial places uh, and superannuation funds we're seeing a, a, and we have been seeing um, you know a, a real concerted effort to move into agricultural 
based um, assets, right? And, and of which red meat's part, of which dairy's part. Um, these aren't stupid people globally. Um, they can see the broad trends. Um, and I think that they, they're moving into these spaces because my, my view is in a lot of those agricultural spaces and red meat's just one of them, that the supply and demand factors uh, are heavily weighed towards being in an, in the space rather than being a consumer of that space. I, I think that you know demand is um, is going to continue to grow at a fairly significant pace every year. You know even even um, you know kind of global turmoils aside to the economic map patterns. I think there's it's still entrenched. There's very solid demand growth prospects, and the supply side is is still somewhat constrained in some areas, or has you know these kind of issues around um, around the types of products that, that certain countries can offer. And I think Australia, given our reputation, you know, uh, given our relatively small population, we're, we're ideally placed um, to be able to to provide these uh, these um, products um, to to that growing area. So I think ten years time, I can still see. Um, you know, uh, an upward trajectory in in, in pricing. Um, you know, for, for these products. You know, even though we're going to have the ups and downs as we go, I think you know the longer term trend. I think is still pretty positive, and I think that's going to be the case for decades. Bullish note to end on. So uh, we we love that. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for for coming on, Matt. It's been a pleasure. No worries, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks to John and Matt for that great discussion. If you want to read the full December 2021 Situation and Outlook report, you can find it at dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash Sando. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. And remember, there's plenty more where this one came from in the archives of DairyPod. Look out for these wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe to DairyPod on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you have any questions or ideas for future podcasts, get in touch with us by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now. Mm -hmm.